0: Well, Captain, I think it's only fair to tell you, I've been to outside agencies. I'm gonna go to more
1: if I have to. We're outside agencies. Holy mother of God.
0: Frank, we wash our own laundry around here. Oh, yeah? Now, you could be brought up in charges for. this. I always thought so, but the reality oh, is, sir, we do not wash our own trouble, laundry. Sir, it Marco, just gets dirty. You are in trouble. I don't care if I'm in trouble. I don't care who gets it anymore, including myself.
1: And welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake
0: Harris, and tonight we are going to be discussing all the things that influenced Batman Begins. We finally did it. We made it to Batman. So we'll start off with um I feel like we've got a lot more Christopher Nolan in the news content uh this week. He it started has the Positively Exploded, for, yeah, you might say. He started the, kaboom kaboom (laughs) uh he started the press cycle for Oppenheimer uh this week because there's a new trailer that is going to come out as of this recording probably in a few short hours but it's late so we're gonna wait and watch that whenever it drops and we'll have a special episode about that when that comes out but uh there was a total film article that came out this past week where he was hyping up everything about that movie about Oppenheimer um so what uh explain a little bit about what was in that article Marshall
1: Oh, just some nice little juicy tidbits about developing black and white film to work with IMAX cameras so he could shoot some black and white sequences for the movie. And then also the fact that he was able to recreate the Trinity test but without dropping a nuke. So we're all left to wonder how in the hell he did that. I think everyone's been saying he. we had the memes, we joked about it, but. The man actually did it. He called everyone's bluff. I mean, he, he blew up a real plane for tenant, right? He'd blew up a real
0: Boeing 747 and the, you know how it is when like a big film publication publishes a thing, every other online outlet just like aggregates it and blogs it all over the place. So the one that I actually saw was from variety, which was just like taking the quotes from the total film magazine article. And, uh, they did this explosion without CGI, he says. They said they did it all practically without the use of computer graphics. So there's probably some right. post-tinkering in there, obviously. Sure, there's sure. no no movie out today. It does not have CGI, no matter what you think. Like, Definitely. The words quantum dynamics and quantum physics are thrown out in terms of how they figured out how to do this. So the... I don't know how he did it. It's like judging from the, the short little trailer that came out before Nope, uh, last summer, which looked insane. I don't know how he did that either, but here we go. The hype um, is building. Yeah. this And he was trending on Twitter today. Like everyone was, everyone was making that same joke. Like, Oh, he's, he finally found out a way to blow stuff up for real. Uh, <laughs> do it. He did a new test in real time. Yeah. Um, but there are, um, stands for movie theaters that have an active clock ticking that is still going right now. I'm scared to think of what happens when it hits zero when the movie (laughs) actually comes out, but he's, uh, he's up in the ante on this. So he's got, he did that trailer for Nope, which is a universal movie. And then now this weekend when avatar, the way of water comes out, he's debuting a special IMAX trailer. So he's going with the Fox Disney big movie premiere for that so he after everything that happened with tenant last year you know suck at warner brothers he's going he's going to everybody else for all their movies look what you you could have had exactly so yeah he's he's ramping it up we've got uh what six months left a little over six
1: months seven months seven months seven. yeah i haven't been still haven't been back to the movie theater yet unfortunately who knows Oppenheimer may be my triumphant return i'm gonna try to get in there before that but i can't wait to be back in the theater especially in an imax theater to see this thing
0: yeah because really we don't i mean we know who it's about it's a historical figure it's not like it's going to be something that can be spoiled but like really aside from the cast there's not really too too much that we know about it coming up so
1: yeah it's the mystery really is in how is he going to approach the subject matter because he hasn't done anything like this before in terms of a, a biopic he's done dunkirk which was a historical film but he's right, never done right. a, a biography of anyone so how he might approach that when everything typically with a person's life is so linear and how he's going to tackle the the themes and the structure whether he's going to try to do something like he did with dunkirk where you have the some parallel timelines or syncing things up or whatever that's that's really I mean, it's like he says in the book, you know, with the, with the genre, you take a genre that gives you a framework and it gives you expectations and you get to play with them. So how, are, how was he going to work with those expectations this time? That's the real mystery. So eager yeah. to find out.
0: Mm-hmm. wonder if he pulls a 24 and like puts a literal timer in the, <laughs> in the frame somewhere. It's, it put- it's supposed to be two and a half hours long. And I'm assuming it will expand like the whole, at least the whole Manhattan project or maybe like parts of his life so it can't be in real time but i wonder if he's gonna kind of play yeah. around with that for a little bit that'll be interesting
1: yeah yeah and then after and obviously the not the literal but the figurative fallout from from all that <laughs> with uh with Oppenheimer's life yeah i mean there's, yeah. So, there's so much fodder here for stupid dad jokes why should i not go for it all uh um, <laughs> hey you're a, you're a dad and i i mean i'm an uncle it's not the same thing
0: but uh i will be telling stupid jokes to my niece all the time so there you go yeah you get to you get to join it it's fine (laughs) yeah but no yeah very very excited for that um this is also just reminding me that i need to start reading that biography of his it's like 700 pages long start
1: now or we'll get it done chip away yeah well yeah uh, with all that yeah plenty the bulkiest section we've had on that for a while uh (laughs) i know i feel like it's only gonna get get more as it comes along
0: so i'm ex- I'm excited for what he says in interviews about this uh, yeah
1: i'm starting to bookmark everything yeah but otherwise what is uh, what are the other pieces of media we're consuming outside of all the nolan stuff um i have
0: uh two podcast recommendations aside from this one that you were listening to right now you should go back and listen to all the other previous episodes if you have not already please do but i found uh, i don't know if you know uh, who jamel Bowie is he's a columnist for the new york times
1: i do not know that um
0: he's a he's a great social media follow too he's his twitter is really good his tiktok is also really good and really really smart Uh, and he has a lot of really good takes that are delivered uh in a very um easygoing and funny way but uh He has a podcast called Unclear and Present Danger, where they uh, take a look at all of the like thriller and like kind of suspense movies from the late 80s into the early 90s, basically like the immediate end of the Cold War, immediate post Cold War timeframe for America. And they look at how all those thrillers reflect American ideas about that and just how politics and everything intersects uh, with how those thrillers were made. Um, And the first episode that they did is about Hunt for Red October. Um, And so they get into like jingoism and American propaganda and, you know, the Soviet Union stuff from back then and all of that in relation to just it's a really great action movie. And they've got a lot of other episodes for other movies. I think they're in like 94 now. So like they got a long ways to go. But I really like that. And I found that from uh, I heard him on another podcast that I was listening to. And I was like, that sounds right up my alley that sounds he pulled a lot you of fun, right so in yeah but no his if you're on tiktok find him on tiktok and twitter too he's he's really good um and then the other one is uh song exploder did an episode their most recent one is on sun Lux, and they did the score for everything everywhere all at once which is so far my favorite movie of the year it's fantastic if you guys haven't seen it go do that right now i need um, to see it but oh man i don't I don't know if you would like it.
1: I don't I don't know. It's, I mean, I know the I've read a few things about it, you know, a couple yeah. recaps or pieces and I'm intrigued. I'm quite intrigued.
0: It is very the showing that me and Taylor were in when we saw it like I felt it once. at some points I was the only one laughing cuz I was the only one that found something funny, but then other times when I was like almost moved to tears by something people were laughing at it so it's a very like it draws out the emotions and it's it's really good but mm-hmm. um very fun movie but anyway they uh they did the score for the movie but the episode is about the post-credits song that they wrote the music for and the lyrics but they got David Byrne from Talking Heads yeah. and Mitski to sing it as a duet and it's really good. And it kind of just like rolls over you as the credits roll. The movie ends on a really blaring sound cue. So it's like right in your face. And then it just cuts off. And then it's this really soft, slow song at the beginning. And obviously, it's Song Exploder. So it gets into all the different elements that had to come together for that song to get made. And uh, they talk to the directors of the movie, Daniels, um, and they talk to the lead singer of Sun Lux about all of that and that process and it was really good and just reminded me of how much I really loved that movie uh, and I'm going to go back and rewatch it now after that but uh, those are my two just two really good podcast episodes and if you want to find out those we will have those links in the show notes for
1: you great yeah I, Sonic Exploder is one of the best around so I'm, I was glad to see that pop up on on the feed and I still need to listen to that one so I look forward to it as for me I'm I'm still doing more Christmas stuff so I've watched the BoJack Horseman Christmas special episode that they put out several years ago. A uh, new classic. It's pretty good. but Even better is Abed's Uncontrollable Christmas from mm. season <laughs> two, I believe, of Community. And that one, uh, the claymation, it's everything they can see, it's uh, Stan it's Harmon at its finest. And it just holds up. It's an annual tradition to get that one. And then the Muppet Christmas Carol over the weekend with the family which also is a classic i hadn't revisited until last year because and for whatever reason and uh oh, it's it's great it's not my favorite adaptation uh that's the 1984 version with george c scott which is personally oh the i like that version too that absolutely one, perfect for me the crap out of me as a kid oh yes yeah, i like that one a lot yeah because that one Public actually Christmas has It was like amazing
0: yeah the george c scott one actually has like the creepy baby thing with the
1: Two of them that ghost to ignorance, ignorance the, the Christmas feature, doom. yeah, or ignorance and want rather, yeah. On their brow no, is Muppet. written the word doom.
0: Yeah. the Muppet one. I, I've been starting to kind of watch that one every couple of years now that it's on uh, Disney Plus. I'll be watching. I watch that one every year at Christmas, and I
1: you know that might have been the reason I was able to start that one. going. Yeah, that's easily easily available, and honestly, a Christopher Nolan connection with Michael Caine in the starring role. Hey, hey, little baby, (laughs) Michael Caine, baby, way younger than he was in, in the movies we're
0: going to be talking about. Definitely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So on that transition, we can shift into the the Christopher Nolan gear. So what are we talking about today, Jake?
0: Um, we are going to be talking about Serpico, a 1973 movie about a, uh, a straight cop going against all the corrupt cops and then we're also going to be looking at Batman Year 1 a graphic novel from Frank Miller and uh that one was uh not quite the exact basis for Batman Begins but Nolan uh pulled a lot of like a lot of that for for batman begins and then in reading the tom Shone book i was going over the notes again i was reminded that darren aronofsky almost made batman begins and had a script treatment ready that drew almost like panel for panel from uh year one yeah very um, violent so, it was described as yeah yeah uh, at one point i said he lights into some skinheads with the glee of a child on christmas i think was the quote so See,
1: we're seasonal uh, yeah yeah
0: <laughs> merry christmas punch a nazi um, and then <laughs> Serpico is, uh, from the book, Nolan said that they lifted that pretty much completely for Batman begins. And there is a lot of that watching it the other night was, I was like, yeah, this shares a ton of DNA with this movie. And so they're all kind of like, I don't know if you had this experience, but I watched Serpico first. Then I finished up reading year one and Same. I felt like I was just reading a kind of like through the looking glass comic book version of Serpico basically oh yeah yeah like what if you just put that movie in Gotham is basically what I was feeling like I was mm-hmm. reading um and then like the wheels started turning and I was thinking about Batman begins and I was like this is all like a riff on the same theme so like, it all it all works and we'll, we'll get to that
1: yeah totally agree I've had the same thoughts and that's why we're
0: here <laughs> yeah Uh, Yeah, but uh, as always, if you have not read or seen the stuff that we're talking about tonight, we will give you an opportunity to just press pause and then come back whenever you're ready because we will be talking about everything going on in Batman Year One and Serpico. So if you have not read the book or seen the movie, you can press pause and go do that now. And now that you're back from doing that, I will let Marshall take over and do the brief synopsis and details for Serpico.
1: Yeah. So Serpico was released in 1973, directed by Sidney Lumet, starring Al Pacino. We're back with him again. John Randolph and Jack Kehoe, done in color, 130 minutes long. And the IMDb synopsis says an honest New York cop named Frank Serpico blows the whistle on rampant corruption in the force only to have his comrades turn against him. And my first note on that is that I actually didn't know this was based on a true story for some reason, somehow until I, you know, I got through at the end and I saw the the post or the end credit note and all that. And I thought, Oh, so there was a lot of beats. I was like, this is, Feel like it could really happen. And it did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, inspired by a true story based on things. Cause
0: like, isn't he basically the reason like that we have internal affairs
1: as we know it today, pretty, pretty much? It sounds like it. I didn't go too deep into what the commission found there in New York, but it certainly sounded like that. Honestly, one of the first things I wrote in my notes was, hey, this is actually the Will Dormer origin story. Or I exposed systemic corruption in the NYPD, and all I got was a bullet in the face. <laughs>
0: Yeah. One of the first notes I took, like, especially after the first instance where he uh, he's wondering why they they're letting the butcher like double park and why they get free meals and stuff. I was like, he's he's the anti Will Dormer. It's the. Yeah, it's in. It's that character arc, but in reverse.
1: In the end, he's responsible for his own downfall. Pacino's responsible for the creation of internal affairs. You fooled. You did it. (laughs) This is is all the official account of the events in the Pacino expanded universe. It's exactly what happens. Oh, well, he's still alive. He's 86 years old, Wikipedia says. Oh, Serpico? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He he finally got some recognition, I think, in like all the official, official things just earlier this year, Eric Adams, mayor of New York, rectified some of that apparently. So, you know, good for Serpico, finally getting his due officially. But I also said this, this movie stars Al Pacino and Al Pacino's hair. And Al Pacino's hats. He uh he has some looks. Al Pacino's fashion. Al Pacino's fashion. He's just serving all that realness here. And uh, <laughs> one of my, one
0: of my notes was like, I want his bucket hat fit that he's got in there. I thought that was a, a good aspect to his character because like as his outfits get, it was a weird thing where like he goes from like a plain clothes beat cop, right? Yeah. Uh, and he's like all he's idealized, but his wants to do the right thing, but the clothes reflects like he's very conservative and straight laced and everything. But as he gets more and more unhinged and more paranoid and he tries to like connect more with people on the street and like actually like be a cop that helps solve their problems, the dress code that he has gets like more and more unhinged. Like he like he
1: dresses more and more like a hippie for his death, costumes, the costumes. His disguises get a little more elaborate. He and he's walking around as like an orthodox Jew at one point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we went into the precinct and everyone's like, oh, hey, Serpico. And yeah. he's taking off his hat and the beard. <laughs> but to back up just a little bit, how did you watch this, Jake? Have you seen Serpico before? Uh, no. I think I
0: might have like maybe seen parts of it on TV. Now that we mentioned the book, I remember my dad having a copy of the book that this is based on on his bookshelf. And I, I was looking at it and I was like, Serpico, what is this? But so like I probably was like exposed to it as a kid, but had never seen the full thing before. Um, and I had to rent this on iTunes because there's really no other good streaming option to to find it right now. But after watching this, like I'd hunt down like a good like Blu-ray copy of it. It was pretty
1: good. Yeah, I was able to it's on one of the prime video channels that you can get. So uh, it was I mean, on yeah. stars. So I was able to get the uh, one week free trial. I went to links to avoid renting it there just, you go there <laughs> you go so i was able to watch it that way so if you haven't taken your one week free trial of the stars prime video channel go ahead and do that and don't forget to cancel if you don't want to pay the 8.99 per month after one week uh, if but, you want to just give if you want to just give apple money I, I feel like it was worth the four
0: bucks but you know
1: yeah i free, I mean, I free would, is better <laughs> sure and I, I would definitely not mind paying money to see this movie but not I would pay for a screening at the theater, not for the, for the the Prime Video channel. <laughs> yeah, but we normally do like a slightly more broad plot summary here. But essentially, it's Serpico graduates from police academy, stars in his eyes. Serpico starts his day job as a cop. Serpico tries to do the right thing. Serpico realizes there's corruption, and then it starts a cycle of him getting transferred between precincts as he's like every single mm-hmm. one's corrupt. He's makes enemies by either not being on the take and you know, letting them do stuff and, while, and then outside of the job, trying to leverage, find anybody he can who says they want to help him and trying to expose this corruption while trying to not, last resort, going to outside entities, being either the Bears' office or ultimately the New York Times, which he finally does do. But he kind of just, he's a lonely man here in the department serpico is but there's not much more than that Uh, you know also outside of his police duties we get to see how the home life it affects him having two significant relationships with two different women Mm -hmm. his first girlfriend who kind of pulls him into the hippie culture and allows him to advocate for like maybe we should you know undercover cops shouldn't dress so conservatively they really stick out maybe we should like i should figure out like how people are the people we're trying to to yeah, the, the scene dressing and
0: the scene where he advocates for for his disguises and his they're trying to bust him on dress code violations and he's like, no, actually, I feel like if we like her
1: out there doing that, that it'll help us and people will take us more seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the second relationship he has is with I think she's a nurse who he spots. Yeah. He's one of his neighbors. It starts out she's uh, mm-hmm. sees her from across his back garden, and you know she moves in with him and they try to live together, but he's too. Obsessed with trying to figure out how we can end the corruption in the police department. And, and he just gets paranoid at and that paranoid like he's, about he's, like the he's risks he's taking. And everyone's coming for him. Yeah. And that kind of just ruins everything. So that's a, something we'll talk about in a little more detail. But as far as uh, taking it from the top, I think we can kind of use Chris Nolan's quote about Serpico as kind of the thesis statement, not just for this movie, but for the whole episode. So he says, he calls Serpico a horror movie set in the real world. Yeah, yeah. Saying it's terrifying. Yeah, And then we lifted it completely for Batman Begins. And then here's the real key part here. The corruption of Gotham had to be on that depressing 1970s level. It had to be on the Serpico level for Batman to make any sense. How is it that Gordon would accept a vigilante? It has to be that Frank Serpico thing where he can't otherwise do anything. And that's like the... Predecessor of the line in Batman Begins, where Gordon tells Flas, you know, in a town this bent, who is there to rat to anyway? And I was thinking of that the entire time with, you know, Serpico, like, who can he go to? Like, there's pretty much nobody. Yeah. He's all alone. Yeah.
0: Even the people that he thinks he can trust are ending up pulling the strings to get him in trouble in the end anyway. So, yeah, he's got nowhere to run, nowhere to turn. The horror movie comment I thought was really interesting because. When it first starts, I don't know if you thought this too, but like, I, I thought that my first, I thought my volume wasn't really working on the TV because it's silent when the credits first come up. Yeah. just for a little movie. bit. Mm-hmm. And I then I, too. I cranked the volume cause I was like, what's going on? Where's the sound? And then it's the siren cause it starts off in medias rest where he gets shot in the face Yeah, and then it backs up to what he did to get shot in the face and why everyone is like almost happy that he finally got shot but just the sirens are blaring the sound design on the windshield wiper because it's it's raining when they're taking yes. them to the hospital and the sound design on the windshield wipers Those thumps really is, Yeah. yeah and like it's that old like 70s cop siren that just is grating and gets in your head and i was like this is very unsettling this is, is this a horror movie i thought this was just like a cop movie
1: yeah yeah the windshield wipers really got me too and then that yeah. whole opening really is kind of like no one's comment about like all my movies are musicals because of turning the sound design over to be the score for that scene, and it it really gets to yeah. you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I did, I like the score here too. I I am uh,
0: remiss because I looked, didn't see who the composer was, but um, I got you. Covered. It was almost like mournful even from the beginning. Yeah, like the music yeah. is telling you like this isn't really going to end well for anyone involved, even though like. If, He doesn't die up front, obviously. I just mentioned, like, he's still alive in real life. He doesn't die in the movie. Right. But he just gets shot, basically, point blank in the face. A bullet gets lodged in his brain. But,
1: Scores by Micas Theodorakis. I'm sorry if I butchered that, but it's another Greek. I say another in terms of, you know, Vangelis (laughs) being a composer we've talked about on the podcast before, so. Yeah. But, no, I like that. But then
0: for how like in your face that is it was a pretty like it eases you into it like especially with the editing and the long takes and the long shots especially in the beginning when it talks about his his time at the academy and his graduation and the way that he tries to put himself in the community and everything like it's a it, it's not hurried really yeah um, it's except it is when it decision. needs to be for other stuff right because it gets i feel like the edits get quicker and choppier especially like as the movie goes along, especially towards the end of the movie.
1: Yeah. Another stylistic thing I noticed too, was just the framing of the shots. Mm-hmm. They f- Most of the time, or at least maybe it was just something I noticed and latched on to and just kept noticing it, but everything feels so close and claustrophobic. The camera work, you know, um, you're either trapped in this place or if it's not doing that, we're seeing characters in Serpico along just like big, New York vistas, is like there beside, I don't know which bridge it was because I don't know all the New York Bridges, but one of the massive bridges there in the New York area, there's one point in the Bronx where they're on a hill that's overlooking Yankee Stadium.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: yeah. And it's just these big wide open spaces. So either you're constricted, you're trapped by the system that you're in, you know, whether he's in his apartment, he's in one of the precincts, the locker rooms, wherever. And... There's just like yeah, a lot of visual space being taken up in the shot, including just putting a bunch of stuff in the foreground that we're focusing past to see Serpico and and the other cops in the shot. And it just really gives you the feeling there's, yeah, there's nowhere to go. He's all alone. That corruption is everywhere. It's closing in. And the other flip side with all the, the big wide open shots. So you're either feeling trapped or you're feeling like everything's too big and you can't do anything about it. Just the scale of it. The people are so small. So how can you do anything? compared to the vastness of the city and the corruption that fills it up yeah and then just from a
0: from a character standpoint too with fighting all that corruption knowing the quotes that Nolan had about this movie and how it inspired Batman begins I was watching it the scene where he I think it's his first girlfriend when he goes to the party where it's a bunch of like hippies and yeah everyone the the two quotes that stuck out with me, or three clothes that stuck out with me was it was almost like he was trying on like a bruce wayne versus batman persona thing because like throughout the oh, whole thing yeah. he he wants to you know he wears plain clothes he wants to use his own car for patrol he wants to blend in and like have that persona but then when he's there and he's and being introduced to all these people at the party and they're like oh like she sells insurance but really she wants to be a novelist or whatever they say And he talks to his girlfriend. He's like, hey, how come all of your friends are on their way to someone else or are on their way to be or become someone else? Right, right. Yeah. And so he's already like thinking about putting on a new identity in that way. And then it's kind of like a running joke at that party where every time he's like, oh, yeah, like uh, I'm a cop. Or his girlfriend just goes, he's a policeman. And then the person immediately just finds some excuse to leave the conversation or go dance or do something else. Right. And so he finally pulls her aside and he goes, hey, just don't tell anyone that I'm a policeman. Just don't say it. Yeah. And so there is a very, very much like, don't tell them I'm Bruce Wayne. Don't tell them I'm Batman thing. Because that is kind of how he he feels about himself, right? He's the lone, maybe not, he, he probably doesn't think of himself as a vigilante, but he is the lone man standing against the tide of corruption in his city yeah. and then it turns that right around and he pulls like almost a bruce wayne type joke uh was not prepared for how funny this movie was he but she noticed a really good performance in this movie oh yeah uh, I, did he win an oscar for that or no he got nominated for an oscar he, for this uh let me check that i think he did but the nominated yeah one mm-hmm. of the friends at that party Is saying, like, oh, yeah, that your girlfriend is a, what did he say? Oh, is it your girlfriend's a mind fucker? Or she, yeah, she's attracted to intelligence and charisma and intelligence in a man. And then Pacino just goes, oh, well, she's very astute then. (laughs) Like, yeah, (laughs) just like that, that wit, like, that's a perfect Bruce Wayne. It's like the line in, in year one where he's trying to give his alibi about where he was on the night that Batman did something. And he's just like, Well, I could tell you this woman that I'm sitting next to could tell you that I was with her, but then again, I don't remember her name and I don't speak the language that she speaks, but just trust me that we were to get like just that type yeah. of <laughs> just dirtbag charisma.
1: There's also a mention of the Batmobile in here in passing. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then also a scene at Christmas time. So we've got the Batman and the time of year we're talking about. So this this movie was just the right time and the right place for everything all the groundwork was laid almost like his his mustache and his, his his other costumes or his his bat suit his costume and his cape yeah and everyone outside of the department you know like in his in his personal life everyone calling him Paco
0: yeah that too yeah 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 yeah, yeah. like sure call me so, Paco.
1: I'll be I'll become
0: Paco so he's he's Jim Gordon who thinks he's Batman.
1: Almost is basically what I what I took from this when I was watching this. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think it's so much of the Batman parallels, but you're right. Yeah, I was thinking all all the Gordon stuff. So I like that. It's good. It's very true. And then with more of the corruption stuff too, there was um, there's so many cops he encounters in this, obviously, but I did like how all their reasons for being corrupt or shady weren't all the same you know some guys were just clearly were like oh this is just how it is okay cool but there's at one point he gets paired with Mm -hmm. uh, a guy who picks up on serpico being this clean guy he's like oh i was kind of like this once at the beginning but then i had a family to provide for and they framed it this way for me right yeah made it okay i like how it wasn't just everyone was just a caricature or just the same stock thing in some way they kind of all are the same stock but they tried to give some nuance to it like hey there's all these different reasons you might go and then maybe you you are an idealist but here's how you could turn and do that and it made me think about you know since the world cup is going on now obviously fifa runs that whole show and FIFA's a mm-hmm.
0: know,
1: completely thoroughly corrupt organization but recently on netflix they have a documentary out Oh, yeah. FIFA uncovered, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And one of my favorite soccer podcasts, the Arshblog podcast, the Arshcast, since I'm an Arsenal fan. But during this break, he's doing World Cup things. And he'd been talking about that documentary for a while. And on one of his recent episodes, he talked to the guy who directed it. And they were talking about like this documentary talks to Sepp Blatter and all these a whole lot of high level FIFA officials from down the years. And I haven't watched the documentary yet, but the way they're talking about it, like some of these guys just talk about it and they don't. it seems like they're shameless. But also the director of the documentary said it seems like they don't think they did anything wrong. And he framed it up so well. He was like, oh, if you know, if I go to this match, and I'm supposed to meet up with some officials and we're going to do some business and discuss things. And then at the end of the the game, I'm walking out of the stadium with a Rolex like that's just to them. That's just how things work. You don't think of it as corruption you just think that's how it's supposed to be. And it kind of speaks to, you know, we like our stoicism. We haven't talked about it too much on here, but we like it. Of the notion that like, well, you see this person, you think they're a cheat, a liar, and everything. But from their perspective, you know, everyone's the hero in their own story, kind of. So they don't think they're doing anything wrong. And you don't know you're doing anything wrong until somebody tries to point it out to you. And I mean, that's what Serpico is doing. But yeah, everyone he's surrounded by, They don't think they're doing anything wrong. This is just the way things work. And nobody really thinks about it until you get somebody who comes into the system who doesn't go along with it. And that's what Serpico does here. Yeah, it really is like death by a thousand paper cuts.
0: You watch him. It's like watching the collapse of someone in real time. You can see the scales come from his eyes throughout the whole course of this movie. And it also reminded me of insomnia a lot too, because there's, like now that I'm watching this and knowing Nolan's quote about like how a star using star power to get people to think differently. Like it, obviously he had seen Serpico before he made Insomnia. Like yeah, there was a reason yeah. why he cast De Niro in that, or De Niro, excuse me, Pacino in that role. Um, you were thinking Duncan Gino, it's okay. Dunk it, yeah. <laughs> the and the the bit that he he tells t- Hillary Swank in Insomnia about like it's the little things that get you. It's the small lies, small mistakes. Every day is made up of little little decisions that you make, and that's exactly what he's he's fighting against here. And so I thought that was an interesting kind of duology of characters with that, and then also the circumstances of his shooting at the end too is it's a lot like the murkiness of insomnia where the two cops that were there and could have done something in Serpico didn't do anything. And probably cause they didn't want to fill out paperwork like the early <laughs> shooting yes. that he was involved in by the dumpster. Right. But now that I think about it up until that final one, does he ever fire a single shot while in the line of duty? Like he gets shot at a lot, but I don't know if he actually, um, he takes a couple of shots at one. the,
1: the rape he responds to if I'm,
0: no, did he shoot at them, or did he just put the gun down and then immediately tackle the guy?
1: Hmm. I, I thought he maybe took a no, couple initial shots to, after they started running, but you know I could be wrong. That, that's a good point. I need to go yeah. back. I need to go back and look. Maybe he did.
0: I could be wrong. I could be. Yeah. trying to form a narrative, but yeah, it's just it's. I don't know how personal you want to get on this, but. I am watching this in the middle of covering for my day job, a police shooting, probably one of the biggest ones to hit Fort Worth in a really long time. And the jury's now going for deliberations. So we're waiting to see um, if they're going to find Aaron Dean guilty of murder in the shooting death of a Tatiana Jefferson. And a lot of the defense testimony over the last couple of days was basically just proving that put all of the, the emotion of the crime aside and their, their argument is all you're trying to prove is that he followed his training correctly. And if you were trying to prove that, then he did that and he's not guilty because he was doing exactly what the police force told him to do. And to me, that look, (laughs) that gets more into, okay, then maybe the training is flawed and we need to look at that, but that's not what's on trial. But yeah, um, I like could not help but think about that. Cause like that would clearly be what the, the thought process would be here for this was just like, Oh, well, like I, I did what they were telling me to do and I did my, what my training said. So I'm fine. And And the line that they put in there, you wouldn't hurt another cop. Would you? When they, they asked Serpico. Yeah. Or the, like, what was the line where he's like, Oh, like how can you trust a cop that doesn't take money? Right yeah the, the like, paradox there yeah. not saying that that's what happened in real life in the event that i just talked about but um, yeah yeah that was not, within not the, context, all, of the, no, no, the yeah. context of the movie no let's make that clear yeah <laughs> um but like i just that has been like my entire like professional life for the last week and so all of that is just swarming around in my head and i was just like huh so
1: really like we were talking about the same problems this movie's 40 years old like you know yeah i mean and sydney lomette really wasn't afraid to go with that subject matter you know he, he did 12 angry men in the 50s he did mm-hmm. network a few years later i think network these three what? now yeah i think these three now are the only lumet films i've seen if i'm remembering correctly yeah oh god network is so we're talking about something that still holds up today my god the <laughs> the scene with the in the boardroom but yeah just how what Serpico is showing in terms of not only the corruption, but just the power that police departments have. And we'll also see this in Batman Year One with how mil- utterly militarized they are. And they say, you know, it's, oh, it's for your protection and we take care of everybody. But honestly, what these pieces of media show is within their context is that, well, kind of it seems like these police departments are only there to enrich themselves and, and having the power in the cities that they're in. And that's very much a Sydney Limette thing to put forth. And I feel like it strikes more at the heart of how things really are than how police departments present themselves as being. Or at the very least, it's a it's a strong counterweight to that and really asks some serious questions like, really? Are you here to protect us or are you here to just respond to things and put up this veneer of protection? So I think it asks some good questions, whether you agree with those views or not, I think it's uh I think it's very fascinating and and quite good. Yeah,
0: lots of good questions that are still relevant today. Obviously,
1: yeah. Don't know how well we handled that subject matter, but I think you know, maybe we fumbled around and hit a few good buttons there to to shed some light on some things. But the only other thing I have to say about Serpico Cir- by itself <laughs> is that uh, I recognized a, a person. I recognized an actor in this movie who's basically amounts to a cameo, but. It's the uh, whoever the commander or whatever precinct he's at early on in the movie. Uh, uh the first commissioner, not the commissioner. Whoever the not I don't know what you call the the, the one the head that, guy, the one that accuses the piss test and thinks he's gay. Yes, it's, it turns <laughs> yeah. out it's James Tolkien. and that if that yeah. doesn't ring any bells for people, just think of for me. I thought of Principal Strickland from Back to the Future, and my first thought also when I recognized him in the movie was exactly what. Marty McFly says in Back to the Future when he goes back to the 50s, Jesus, didn't that guy ever have hair? And apparently the answer is no. No. He this did was made not, twelve cause... years before Back
0: to the Future. Yeah. Because my first thought I was like, is that the guy from Top Gun? And then I had to, uh, Yeah. Because there's so many character actors in this thing. The IMDB page for this cast is like so deep very much Um, so i was just like scrolling and i was like oh yeah that's him because my first thought was the line from top gun where he's like i gotta do something that hurts me so bad but it's the best thing for this country but i hate it you two losers are going to top gun like it's it's (laughs) you haven't seen that movie but that's the exact level of of uh that's the tone that that movie's operating on
1: right right
0: it's great anyway yeah that was all i have to say about that one i really liked that one Yes, um, I'm enjoying Excellent. Uh, through the course of this podcast, finding stuff that I had always wanted to watch, but had never really had an, a reason to before other than just picking up the movie. So, yeah, yeah. Good
1: to good to see that. Should we do the um, Letterbox reviews for this one or should we wait till
0: we should probably do it now? Oh, yeah, we can do that now because we don't really have anything for year one. The first one I've got is another Fran Hoppner joint. <laughs> uh, we need to get her to sponsor this thing at this point. <laughs> She has a Substack newsletter that's pretty cool. It's called Fran Magazine. If you want to find that, and it, the review. I love the the quick one line ones. It just says they shot him in the face for having grad school vibes. <laughs> uh, and the 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 James Tolkien bit came after he learned that Serpico was doing ballet to improve his balance and athleticism, and so right. that just basically made him think that. He tried to frame him up as being gay in the police department and this being the sixties and seventies. That was a big no, no. Yeah. Uh, and so I tried to get him reassigned, but I thought that review was pretty funny. Grad school vibes. He did have a, he had a lot of fits in this movie. He had a great <laughs> costume design. And then the other one is by someone I follow on Letterboxd. Her name is Jen Johans. And she is uh, she's a podcast host called watch with jen that's her podcast i think that one's a lot of fun too but uh the first line of it is the one that i'll i'll hone in on and just say and it says beautiful soulful and oh so feral al pacino in the 70s except no substitutes and he really it's a great performance by him it's great like it hits all the like i said he's funny he's paranoid he's obsessed and like driven, like almost deranged at one point, and then yeah, but also really like nuanced because like you can tell that it's coming from a place of
1: of caring. Like just imagine this this movie came out the year after The Godfather. So you imagine seeing him in that all buttoned up and sharp looking with the slick hair and and then the next year seeing him in Serpico just what a turn. So crazy. And also uh Dog Day afternoon too I think well, that was before this one, right? Oh man. I feel like, without looking it up, I feel like Dog Day Afternoon was in 1974. You're, oh, right. yeah. You're checking me? Right. I, yeah, all 75. right. Bring me so to the trivia day. nights now. <laughs> all right. Still, yeah.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I had a really good run of uh, just very diverse characters.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, my Letterbox review, also a good one-liner that I that I came upon. And I think this will also be a great transition over into... Batman year one. But for this, Eric Hatch wrote this review at Eric Allen Hatch. And he wrote, One good apple spoils the bunch. Very true. Yeah.
0: That's so good.
1: (laughs) Is that not just the best way to sum up uh, both of these things tonight? Man, that's good. Yeah. So that's Serpico's story. And it is also the story of Lieutenant James Gordon in batman year one it is and so batman
0: year one we read a collection of four separate comic issues of batman year one that were released between february and may 1987 and they were released as batman numbers 404 through 407 written by frank miller who also wrote the dark Knight returns Uh, he also did a little little graphic novel uh, called 300 uh, that you may have heard that was turned into a, a movie some years back. Sin City. Uh, Sin City, that too, yeah. Illustrated by David Mazzuccelli and color by Richmond Lewis. And so basically the story is just, uh, it tells two separate and intertwined tales. It's Batman's first year as a crime fighter after he returns home to Gotham after a extended period of absence. And then it also takes a look at James Gordon's first year as a recently transferred Gotham police detective. And then the whole thing builds to a head to where the end of the comic run is all about their first encounter that they have and their eventual alliance against Gotham's criminal underworld.
1: Yeah, their first encounter where they actually talk to each other and it's not what you would expect and it's great. No, it's great. Uh, We'll get to that. but um, Yeah, and then the eventual alliance. And there's not even there's not even a scene where they like agree to do this. It's kind of implied as the, the comic rhymes mm-hmm. up and it's because because also just, really good. Yeah. So much
0: of the, the characterization is in the, the voiceover, what would be a voiceover in a movie, but like the, yeah, the dialogue voiceover in the comic strip proving basically that these people are, they're cut from the same cloth essentially. And so I read this one, I maybe cheated and read this on Comixology on my phone (laughs) on the comics, which is a you can go panel by panel. So I like doing that, but I'd had that from a single. You read it? I think you're
1: good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I checked out the copy from my local library, as I do. And always a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. I got to read the, it was the deluxe edition. So there's a bunch of bonus material in the back Mm -hmm. that maybe I'll get Mm -hmm. to. But all the different like sketches and stuff. Yeah, and some like the script. Like Frank Miller wrote it like a script for the words and things and then handed it over to David Massicelli and yeah, yeah. let him go seemingly. I just never thought of comics in a production end in that way before. I've I've never been a big comics guy. Not you know, nothing no. against it. Just never was a thing I got into. But I like all pursuits, you know, I respect it and I acknowledge the artistry and the effort that goes into creating them. Actually, this is the second graphic novel like I've ever read ever. I think, I think the only other one I read before is V for Vendetta, uh, which Ooh, I also okay. enjoyed. Yeah. If you yeah. like
0: this one, I got some. I got some other Batman
1: recommendations for yeah, you. Please do. Um, I mean, that movie. I'll be reading another one later on before we yeah. get to the Dark Knight. But again, yeah, nothing against <laughs> it. Just never something I really got around to. But I enjoyed this a lot. So, basically what happens this it says it's yeah year one so it's the four issues combined together as one collection take place over the course of a year it starts in january ends in december and for gordon it starts with him arriving in gotham being transferred from it sounds like chicago yeah uh, i think it's chicago there. which is also a nice batman begins or like the whole batman trilogy references right. they
0: filmed so much in chicago
1: and he's been transferred he's been transferred or Seemingly possibly kicked out or just left the, yeah, the department really under says. a cloud of disgrace for it seems like maybe trying to bring somebody up on charges internally and being wrong about it. So he's kind of disgraced. And then the irony is he's now the only honest cop in the absolute dung heap that is the Gotham mm-hmm. Police Department. And he arrives with a lot of anxiety about, like, oh, God, like, my wife's arriving on the plane. She shouldn't see Gotham like this. Like, he's coming in on the train. And he's like, oh, God, maybe she's pregnant. This is no place to raise a child. So, mm-hmm. anyway, he gets into the department. He's the only, uh, very like he's the only honest cop. But he's trying to stay honest. And he makes a lot of enemies. They try to beat him up and intimidate him. But that doesn't deter him. And eventually, he solves some cases, is the hero essentially, gets really good with the media, so it makes it harder for the bad guys to in the department to mess with him since he's a, a public figure now. And eventually he rises up a little bit and is tasked with taking down Batman, who has arrived in Gotham to vigilante it up. And once that happens, then it's about how he's trying to manage the, this corrupt system and also try to catch Batman and then Batman's story is yeah Bruce Wayne comes back at the beginning of the year from a 12 year absence somewhere he hasn't been home for a long time and it follows him as he is talking to himself he's like you know I'm I'm here here's my all the enemies are everywhere and it essentially is kind of what it says on the tin. it looks at his efforts too start fighting crime. It starts out, he just like goes into seedy areas of town and tries to see what's going on. And then he gets in a couple of fights and he's like, well, that didn't go very well. I got to do something different. And that's how he decides to dress up as Batman. Eventually, even then, when he's Batman, yeah. all the things he's trying to do, he's just trying to catch people in the act of burglarizing a place, but he doesn't approach it right. And he nearly drops somebody off of a, a fire escape by accident. And, has to save them while his friends yeah, are beating him up. And Batman gets in a lot of hot water in this. And he doesn't look very capable until the end. He finally finds his groove. And it's like, okay, yeah. But the twist of that is he's not dressed as Batman when he does it. He's just Bruce Wayne. And he, yeah, the, the last issue, I guess, is later in the year, Gordon has a baby. And he's a dad. And then there's also a case that could expose a whole lot of corruption and his former partner is under investigation. And so they're trying to finally get rid of Gordon once and for all or to get him, bring him to heel by kidnapping his son. And it's really, really dramatic. But Bruce Wayne shows up, not really even disguised, but he had figured this out at the last second. He's like racing over there on a motorcycle and then he's the one who eventually saves the baby. And then Gordon realizes, like, sees him face-to-face, except during this whole thing, Gordon's lost his glasses, and he says, well, thanks, like, but I also I can't see anything about my glasses. You better get out of here before the police show up. Thanks for saving my son. Part. Yeah, so, ah, oh, it's just fantastic. And then it wraps up with uh, Gordon saying, oh, things are still bad. The commissioner's going to be pushed out, which is good, but the next guy is going to be even worse, apparently. But we'll figure that out, because I got a guy I know and you know close up on him in the panel looking very knowing he'll help me figure out this guy that just showed up calls himself the joker starting to cause some mayhem and it ends on the same kind of beat as batman begins does without batman being in the the panel with the joker card yeah exactly so that's what that one's about i may be over egged the pudding there but now we have some some beats to to talk about the first wish for me is to get us started it's honestly more like gordon your one am i right jake huh
0: Yeah, I was very surprised at how much it focuses. It almost focuses more on him. I would say this is maybe like a 60, 40 Gordon to Batman story. Yeah, Uh, because he is the audience surrogate, right? It's how Gordon experiences Batman as well. We do get the narration of Bruce Wayne and how he comes to become Batman. but Yeah, he, he was much less interesting to me than Gordon. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're introduced to it through Gordon's eyes and it ends on Gordon's eyes saying that he has this new friend that he can fight crime with in Gotham. Yep. And the care, I would say the character arc more belongs to, to Gordon. Cause not only do you have, I don't think that he is corrupt and I don't think that the, he doesn't let the, the police force corrupt him in Gotham. Yeah. but he does end up cheating on his wife with his partner yeah just at the, work. the stress of everything for him yeah yeah and the i felt like that, that was handled really intelligently but i think what it was trying to say was you know no one's immune anyone's susceptible to corruption but he never he didn't skim any money he didn't take any bribes he didn't do anything his was purely like a personal screw up it wasn't
1: endangering the city yeah yeah i mean kind of with serpico too he has relationships too like he's doing his job and trying to bring some goodness and decency to the force but the obsession of that and the just the pressure of the work and knowing nobody likes you there Uh, for serpico right that's for gordon and the trade-off there is you have your personal life just takes the hit and It mentions this in Nolan Variations when talking about Batman Begins, but it says he makes a Faustian bargain um, Mm -hmm, to uh be Batman. And it's right there in Batman Begins at the the very end where Rachel's talking to him. She's like, no, this is your mask touching Bruce's face. You need this right now. So we can't be together. So that through line of like, okay, you're fighting the crime and trying to make good, but there's got to be some kind of trade-off there. And that's with all three of these things. So those influence on these two very clear on on how that plays into Batman begins. Speaking of Batman Begins and the Dark Knight trilogy, there was plenty of just nuggets scattered through here that it was fun mm-hmm. sort of like reverse Easter eggs, like what they took from the this comic and of course others right. to see like what Falcone, made its way into the into the films. Yeah, the Roman The Roman, ben.
0: Falcone a little bit it's starting to lay the groundwork for Dent. Yeah. Uh for Harvey Dent,
1: the Joker never during the day alfred a he says to alfred and he's like, like, like i take your, your suit out he's like no alfred never during never the day, during the day. yeah put right into the dark night at one point <laughs> um they're going after gordon's family and Batman saving yeah. Gordon's son but gordon still technically doesn't see him in the comic and then in the dark night and doesn't see him so like a lot right. of dark Knight stuff really came to, came to my mind but yeah just a whole bunch of things since it's batman obviously
0: <laughs> yeah and yeah. i think the Cause Batman begins does have a little bit, especially at the beginning where he, he doesn't really have a whole handle on the, the crime. I was also reminded of this year's the Batman with, uh, how that version of the character really does struggle at first with how he is going to implement his crime fighting skills. There's a scene in the new one where he, he has like an equipment malfunction while he's using the glider, and it's pretty funny it's played for laughs but i also i was thinking about the different like who's your favorite jim gordon in movies because i like the gary oldman one in these nolan ones i also thought jeffrey wright did a really great job in the new one
1: in the batman oh i haven't seen jeffrey wright but i'm always down for a good jeffrey wright He's, he's good um he plays it really well I I can't oh man I can't remember who like who the heck played Gordon in like the '90s Joel Schumacher ones. So I, can't I even mean remember. the default me for see. me is Gary Oldman. Did Olden. they even
0: have Jim Gordon in that one?
1: If he was, he was like just the old, white-haired guy. Otherwise, I mean, there's the guy from the Adam West show. But <laughs> I mean, you got the ones from the animated series, which is which is great. Oh, that's true. I really haven't seen much of that that I can remember. I mean, I but. It, As far as Gary Oldman, I mean, I like what he does. I mean, there were the parts at certain points where just like his voice floated into my head for what I was reading. So yeah, that tells you just either that's my main experience of the character and or I really liked how he did it. But you mentioned Jeffrey Wright reminded me of with the Batman screwing up a lot as he's trying to figure things out. It reminded me a lot of Casino Royale with Daniel Craig's Bond kind of. It was like a soft reboot, but... There's a lot of things in there that Bond screws up. He's subverting some expectations a bit. We know at that point we knew just like, okay, Bond, Suave, sophisticated master spy always does everything right, but we're accustomed to having him always just, everything is really easy and no problems. But I remember without even looking it up, I remember I wrote a review of Casino Royale for my high school paper. And the line I remember from that is, Bonds is human in this. He bleeds. You know, he's actually capable of making a mistake. And that's Batman here. And even one point, I think at the end of one of Batman's string of panels, the last word he says is like lucky because he screwed something up. He's like, yeah, I just got lucky here. That's kind of like a through line for Batman in the comic in this case, in this one. Punch me, I bleed. Yes. Um oh it was a guy named
0: Pat Hingle. He was he was Jim Gordon in the original eighty nine Batman, and then doesn't look like he came back for Batman Returns, but he did come back for Batman Forever. There and Batman and Robin. Okay. So yeah,
1: those are the ones so, I remember. Yeah. Weirdly. <laughs> yeah. But this um, one's also, yeah, much no. rougher than year one was much rougher than batman begins kind of like more what darren aronofsky's treatment was like it's like an r-rated version versus no one's pg-13 oh, the edges yeah. are sanded down a bit yeah especially the one where he the scene where he's hiding
0: underground from everyone when uh the corrupt cops are trying to like bomb that housing project yeah basically yeah there's people the the corrupt cops go so far as to Basically, drop a nuke on Section Eight housing in Gotham. <laughs> yeah, more or less. Yeah. Lots and lots of bombs. Because they're like, yeah, it's down. It's up for condo. The building's condemned anyway. Just because the only, it, only had a, a couple of bombs are gonna die. Just it's the cops are so corrupted. This it's, thing,
1: it's, it's insane. insanely evil. I mean, you know, they kidnap the baby and are gonna kill the baby. I know.
0: It's that was what. for. Because I kept wondering, I was like, obviously this kid's going to play a role because he keeps mentioning him. Chekhov's infant, I called it. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Chekhov's baby. Uh, I was like, and then they stole the child. I was like, man, what are you? I liked that it was, there's, how do I put this? Because like the, in the the afterward, when the writers and the illustrators are talking about their first experiences with Batman, one of the first quotes is, uh, for me, Batman was never funny. Yeah, that's as a reference familiar. to, yeah, as a yeah. reference to the early, like Adam West serials. And the, you could take Batman and, and have it be like a very self-serious, very almost melodramatic thing because it is a very, I mean, the, the guy's parents were shot and killed in front of them and then he, the way he deals with that is he puts on a cape and becomes a, a bat like figure and fights criminals. So the, there is a lot of melodramatic aspect of it. It's very comic booky, but there's always been like a source of of realism to it. But the writing here and some of the dialogue is so fitting for a comic book. But if it had been in any other medium, you would probably think it was overwrought. But it just works so perfectly here. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, when he first figures out that uh, his house is situated on top of a bat cave which is almost pulled exactly from Batman begins when he's building the bat cave down there yeah and they they expand this part out where he's he's basically doing a Norman Osborne to his dad's urn talking about how he he doesn't know what to do he doesn't know how to carry on his, his family's legacy yeah he yeah, doesn't know how to carry on his family's legacy what do I do And then he's like, oh yeah the bat scared me as a child. But then the line just says, "It frightened me as a boy." Yes, Father, I shall become a bat. In the in context, it's so cool. But seeing the line, yeah. on its own, you're like, "That's no one.
1: No one's gonna say that." But a man who just very melodramatic, but yeah, yeah, but yeah it, I think it does work fine because you know, obviously, like in Batman Begins, they show very much, and that tell with the very first shot of the movie, you know, with the the bats flying into Bruce's face as a kid and him falling down that, that well. So, and then you got other like
0: Jim Gordon's voiceover in this is almost written like it's like a noir. Oh Um, yeah. Yeah. Very much. I, I loved like all the little lines that he had in that one, especially is funny because the, the moments where he's cheating on his wife and his dialogue is so conflicted. And that's some of the best lines, a dialogue in the whole thing. I thought, the bit where he says he's giving you the background on his partner named Essen, which Essen, really? a sin, is that what he's? Hmm, hmm, makes you think. It's just that a German was, name. No. I don't Cigar think that's the a It's <laughs> just a German name. It's just a German name. I'm just, <laughs> um, but he's giving you the background on her through things that she's told him, right? And yeah, says that she was transferred out of or not transferred but she left a bunch of other different jobs because they told her she was too masculine and his his response was whoever told her she was masculine must have been blind dumb and deaf and yes. dead <laughs> and i think it's later on a few panels down where it's their first their first little hookup and it's raining and they get in a cab and they kind of wait for the cab underneath the an awning in the city and they make a reference to Noah in the Ark, talking about, we learned how Noah felt waiting out the rain Mm -hmm. as like, you've got poetry and like stuff like that mixed in with, I will become a bad, like (laughs) (laughs) like it's a, it's a good tonal balance. I think that's really good. Also, I really enjoyed the Nighthawks painting reference with the Gordon and Essen subplot there in, uh, I think that was the September 2nd, moment where they're waiting at the diner getting a cup of coffee after their shift i thought that was nice so right. it's, it's referencing a bunch of other stuff as well and then you get something like the final criminal in the book is his last name is skeevers so yeah uh, yeah <laughs>
1: yep good high and low balance there i thought yeah and i just uh the last thing i might say about the comic by itself is obviously this is what a vigilante is but i guess a light bulb moment for lack of a better term the irony of batman technically becoming a criminal to fight other criminals but it's really just in this it's really so strongly (laughs) the point is made because the police are so corrupted like so evil it's not even just like oh we're taking kickbacks like they're actively evil i think what's gordon's line it's like a The commissioner has his own force of killers, his own personal army, and it just really kind of harks back to what Nolan said about like Serpico. It really does show you a system that's so hopelessly corrupt and broken that the only solution is to like turn to some kind of outside entity. And Nolan talks about how vigilantes show up, like what can drive somebody to dress up and do that? What could lead somebody like, say, Gordon to accept that? And it even more so than Serpico, this thing really shows you like, oh, this is how this could really happen. OK, I get it. And then it kind of connects to the point that the Joker makes in the Dark Knight film. You're not one of them. You're not a cop, even if you'd like to be to them. You're just a freak. And they're only as good as the world allows them and allow you to be. So just that through line there. And like you see it in other places, like I said, I've read Vendetta. That's that system is really, really bad. You know, you're living in a fascist dictatorship. So V takes things into his own hands. And then even in real life here, like in this country, communities of color have known this for a long time. You can't rely on the system. You can't rely on the government. You can't rely on the police force to actually protect you. So they have mutual aid. You had the rise of the Black Panther Party. They can't wait for the police or policy solutions to like do what they're supposedly supposed to do so they have to take care of themselves maybe not on a vigilante level but on a more real life level you have the community you share your money you help each other out because that's the only thing that they can rely on but i don't know if there's any other notes i had here there is i said that gordon's biggest strength and then also serpico's it turns out is like their biggest strength is they never do what the corrupt cops expect them to do you know, Serpico is just like, are you on the take? And they pressure him so relentlessly. And he's like, no, I'm not going to take anything. And then Gordon, like at every single turn, you know, at the beginning, he doesn't go along with anything they're doing. And then like right up to the end where they're holding the knife up to his baby and they're like, don't do anything stupid. They think he'll just wilt. And he's like thinking to himself, well, if I let them go now, they're dead. And they're holding yeah. his wife, too. So he instead he fires and they're like, what? he's crazy. Let's get out of here. And so, yeah, well, the biggest strength also gets them in a lot of hot water, but that's what really makes them stand out. They're not going to go along with things. And I thought that was really cool. They're literally doing their own thing because it's yeah. either the right thing to do or they're just too damned honorary <laughs> mm-hmm. Is there anything else you have, Jake, you want to talk about? Let me see. Just basically the, yeah,
0: it's, Like I said, at the top of the episode, I felt like I was reading remixes of the same story here for Batman begins and Serpico and year one. Cause I, this truly is like down to the, like the cornering of Jim Gordon to beat him up in order to put him back in line and yeah, the threatening of him and just saying like, come on, like even the scenes where the commissioner is talking to flas and everyone. About like, oh yeah, I want to kick him out, but we can't do it. It's not going to look good. We got to wait to play the politic game and then we can get rid of him. But in the meantime, how about you, you take care of it yourself. And then, you know, they go corner them and they try to corner him and beat him up. All of that even is the same with Serpico where the, he thinks he's, he's finding a pure way of dealing with it towards the end when really everyone's just still on the take and It doesn't matter who he talks to. It doesn't matter who, where he turns. They're just going to keep like running it up the flagpole to their boss, and then he's going to get transferred. And you know, everyone's just going to keep looking out for him because they know that he's the one that's going to going to hold them accountable. Yeah, I did think it was interesting too here in year one, where their way of dealing with criminals, both Batman and Jim Gordon, is the same way. Like he. After Gordon gets beat up by Flass and some of his other little cronies in the police department, he goes and finds Flass and just beats the crap out of him and strips him
1: down and handcuffs him and leaves him on the side of the road. Yeah, they were... A, Ties but, him up. They were supposed to be like off that night. He, he asked somebody in the department over the radio like, hey, where's Flass? And like, oh, he's on, yeah. he's on poker night with the boys. Mm-hmm. And, and so with the boys, yeah. So they, yeah, they're all uh, drunk and he's able to get one back over on Flass. Yeah. And then
0: later when Batman wants to make a point and is dealing with a really, really bad criminal, he ended up tying him up and just leaving him for people to find as well. Right. Um, and I thought that was a nice similarity between the two of them because they really are, it's on all of Nolan stuff. It's got time because it's told over the course of a year. Exactly. It's got the we're not so different type thing and all about what is really like the true right thing to do conflicts and everything yeah i had a lot of fun with it i thought that it was i'm sad that i had never read it sooner honestly now i'm going to be going out there and looking for more all of the james gordon comics that i can find because i really truly he was the most interesting character in this graphic novel by far to me yeah but yeah really good and really just like makes me excited to rewatch batman begins to see what all they pulled from this and what all they
1: pulled from serpico just as a refresher Agreed. Well, yeah, I don't have anything else. So I suppose we'll move forward toward that happy time. Happy time? Would it be happy watching Batman begins? Do we feel like truly happy feelings? Or anyway. I mean it's a um,
0: I it's not a happy I, it's, film. It's always good to <laughs> it's always good to see a movie where um Liam Neeson gets to play a bad guy, I think. Oh yeah. So. Ugh. Liam Neeson,
1: that's my guy. Mm-hmm. I love some Liam Neeson. Mm-hmm. well on those good vibes on those good thoughts um where can people find us jake yeah we are over at
0: at friends at dusk pod on instagram and at friends at dusk on twitter you can always email us at friends at dusk pod at gmail.com and for me on my social media platforms, uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Jake Harris 4 And if you want to look up Letterboxd, uh, that is at 808Jake underscore.
1: Yeah, and I am on Instagram at Marshall.Doig, on Twitter at Marshall Doig, and on Letterboxd at MDoig. Please give us a like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, Leave us a nice five-star rating, if you could be so kind. Uh, you can support us, too, through our Anchor page, if you want to put any money our way. We promise we will be open and transparent about it. We will not be on the take, I guess. Always. <laughs> we, would, we
0: will not take any. We take no bribes. What does he say? I'm never stopping. We'll never, You can do whatever you want, and we will never quit. We will never take any bribes yeah Um, and then you can also find a list of all the resources that we have all of our media list our google doc with everything that we've been talking about all the stuff that we're going to talk about in the future as well as all the podcasts and tv shows and movies that we mentioned here in this episode you can find those in the show notes and with that next time we are going to be discussing batman begins and we're going to kick off the
1: dc comics era of christopher nolan Great. I'm looking forward to that. But for now, that'll do it for us here. And we'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Bye.